Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. In our last episode, we discussed how to manage paper tiger paranoia, needless anxiety that arises as a result of threats that are exaggerated by the mind. Today, we're going to continue our focus on the experience of fear with an episode dedicated to feeling safer. Joining us is Dr. Rick Hansen. So this may seem like a simplistic question, but at bottom, what causes someone to feel afraid? It's a great question. I think it's the simple questions that are usually the great questions. Mm. And if you think about it, at bottom, fear has to do with a sense of a mismatch between threats and resources. For example, if you, let's say, realize you suddenly have a flat tire, but on the other hand, you know that your tire went flat 100 yards from a gas station where they Mm -hmm. can replace your tire, and you've got a spare in the trunk, and you've got plenty of time to get to your meeting, and in fact, you just got a bonus gift from your tenure membership (laughs) in the Trip American Automobile Association with a free tire change, you're going to feel fine. On the other hand, if that tire goes flat, same event, except it happens at two in the morning, driving home late at night on the middle of a lonely road, in a bad part of town and you're nervous about being stuck there and you realized earlier that your spare tire in the trunk is actually completely flat and you look in your wallet and you realize you forgot your wallet and you have no credit cards and you're in deep trouble, well, then the threat is the same, but the sense of resources is really dropped. So there's a mismatch there. And this gives us a wonderful strategic structure with four ways to deal with real issues while feeling less needless anxiety. In other words, while suffering less. So number one, we can increase actual resources and the accurate perception of resources because people usually underestimate their resources, including resources inside their own psyche. Second thing we can do, or really the third and the fourth, is that we can appraise threats accurately and not overestimate them and actually reduce them objectively. That gives us four kinds of interventions. And when you bring it all together, that then can help you feel as safe as you reasonably can. So what do you mean by as safe as you reasonably can? Because that that sounds like a kind of nuanced phrase. Yeah. So first of all, I drop in that word reasonably to respect the fact that I don't think in this life there's any perfect safety. Yeah, it's it's important to see real threats that are out there. Yeah, and to know that something bad can happen in any moment. Not to make people crazy about this, but one of the geekier things I realized, I don't know, fourth grade, I I discovered that given the speed of light, that the light that lands on our planet, Earth, left the sun over eight minutes ago. Mm -hmm. This means that the sun could have blown up four minutes ago, and we won't know for another several minutes. Sure. That's just true at any time, or to bring it more down to earth, at any moment, uh, the body could go tilt, people get heart attacks, uh, things, strange things happen around us. There's no perfect safety. So the question is, can we feel as safe as we reasonably can? Then the other thing about this, uh, for the reasonable part, is to recognize the importance of dealing with real threats. If you're in a threatening environment, if you're dealing with hazardous conditions, it would be delusional to feel safe when mm-hmm. you're actually not safe. Mm-hmm. So you want to feel as safe as you reasonably can. So that's why I slipped that in there. To give you an example, uh, in the last podcast, we talked about paper tiger paranoia, and I, I, tilt pretty hard, I tilted pretty hard there. 
against threats and anxiety and was trying to make a case that much of the time we have needless anxiety. Mm. But on the other hand, uh, I think it's really important to appreciate, as, as you've said to me before, that uh, we don't want to go too far the other direction, mm-hmm. that it's actually really important to see threats clearly and to not suppress your anxiety. And I had a funny example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day when I was first going out rock climbing, I would be up on the cliff all day long mm-hmm. and then go back to the campground and sleep in the dirt. I think that's behind me at this point, I hope. But anyway, sleep in the dirt, and I was falling asleep, and suddenly I would have the most vivid imagery of tumbling thousand feet down the side of the cliff face to splatter on a slab of granite at the bottom. Mm. Whoa! I pulled right up. Like, I, I didn't want to feel frightened like that. And then I would go, that was weird. So then I would start to fall asleep again. And as I was falling asleep, woof, there I was spinning down the face of the cliff to die in a crash at the bottom. Well, after half a dozen times of this, I got kind of tired of it. And I said, what the heck? So I let myself fall asleep. And as I was falling down and plummeting to, toward the, the slab of rock at the bottom, I allowed myself to hit it. And in the moment of impact, I suddenly had this realization that what was bubbling up inside me was all the fear that I had suppressed over the course of the day. Hmm. As someone who is rock climbing and what's called leading, so you're climbing above your protection, so you really could fall, um, I thought that the way I had to handle that was just to push down all the fear and actually feel no fear whatsoever. But then what would happen is that that fear would come bubbling back up. Um, at night when I was vulnerable and and, uh, things could bubble back up again. And I realized that there's a sweet spot where you feel a certain amount of anxiety to keep you on your toes, to help you stay vigilant, maybe rev you up a bit to deal with real issues, but you don't let it overwhelm you. You find that kind of sweet spot where you're neither suppressing it entirely nor flooded and overwhelmed by it. And to me, that's another way of speaking about what it means to say to feel as safe as you reasonably can. So what you're saying is that a little bit of fear can go a long way. Yeah. And also that you can be reasonably concerned, reasonably aware of the possibility of something bad happening without having it really penetrate your psyche and become this constant stream of negative thought in your mind. Yeah. You know, it's it's the quote from the Buddha that you like, you know, painful feelings arose or fear arose, but yeah. it didn't penetrate my mind and remain. Yep. And that's one of the quotes that you've sort of shared with, with me that I found kind of most useful in my life. Yeah. This idea that you can feel bad, you can have a feeling of anxiety, you can have a feeling of fear, but not have it penetrate the mind and remain, yeah. not have it leave that trace in the mind. Yeah. To go to your point, I think a lot Uh, It's normal for anxiety to arise, and we just don't want to let it invade the mind and remain. What happens, though, is that because anxiety is this primal signal that's utterly relevant, if it's true, for raw survival, the brain and the mind tends to privilege it. Mm. We tend to hop on board anxiety Mm -hmm. and believe it. And also, what's really interesting to appreciate is that a primary source of anxiety is some kind of physiological dysregulation. Like, literally, you ate the wrong thing for lunch, or it wasn't cooked properly, 
or there's some kind of subtle imbalance in your blood sugar level way, way, way down in the basement of the body. So the body starts feeling uneasy about what's happening at a physical level. No serious illness, no real danger there, but there's a kind of uneasiness in your physiology. And then that signal bubbles up to the mind. And yet the mind doesn't realize, oh, it's actually my digestion, or it's actually some kind of you know, fairly small scale, uh, microscopic biochemical imbalance and something or other. But at the mind level, you just feel uneasy. You feel mm. apprehensive. And so then what do we do? We start looking around for some sort of threat outside ourselves. And um, that's a major source, actually, of a lot of anxiety that people feel. And then as soon as it happens, they hop on board it. They hop on board that anxiety. They privilege it. They identify with it. They let it invade their mind and remain. And then phew, they start looking for something. So as you mentioned, we spent some time in our previous episode talking about seeing those threats clearly. Mm -hmm. If fear is an imbalance between threats and resources, how can we build up our honest appraisal on the other side of the coin of resources mm. so we know what we have to kind of bring to bear on those threats if they do arise? A useful thing, I think, for people listening to this would be to take five minutes even and just jot down resources in their life related to things that they're anxious about. So pick something that you're anxious about, and uh, it could be related to past history, even traumatic history, or it could be related to some objective, some real challenge in your life these days. It could be interpersonal, like being anxious about what other people think of you or how they'll react if you do something or are one step more authentic or vulnerable around them. Put that anxiety down on a piece of paper, maybe at the top, list it. And then let's go through systematically some of the resources mm. you might have to deal with it. So first category would be resources in your own psychology. How are you determined or intelligent or skilled or talented in various ways? What kind of know-how could you bring to bear? What sort of character virtues like patience or endurance or resourcefulness or tenacity could you bring to bear for the particular issue? So that's the first place to look. What are the resources in your own psyche? Second, what are the resources that have to do with your possessions of various kinds? Money, physical objects, good credit, reputation. What do you possess in those regards that you could draw upon to deal with this particular threat? People you know who might know someone who knows someone, let's say, who could help you with this particular thing. Third category, how could you increase your resources? What could you do? In other words, what resources could you draw upon to get more resources? Mm -hmm. What could you do to increase your resources to deal with this particular thing? Could you apply for another credit card? Could you find a better doctor? Could you... Uh, talk with a lawyer for half an hour as a consultation to get a sense about whether you really need to deal with something? Could you uh, shift your friends group so that over the next six months, it starts having a higher density of people that are the kind of people you really sync up with, you really like, you, you really feel good around? How could you increase resources in that systematic way? What I've just described could take five or 10 minutes tops 
And yet, if people were to do it in this sort of way, and I think writing it down is especially helpful because then it gets kind of real, mm -hmm. um, then you're going to feel a lot better. And if you want, as a sort of bonus, frosting on the cake, you could do this by talking with another person, especially mm. someone who's on your side that you trust, who's not going to tilt either way. They're not going to be like, oh my God, this guy is falling. Or on the other hand, oh, you're fine. Don't even think about it. But no, would actually help you in a systematic and grounded way a resource up to deal with a particular issue. I think that that's a great way to address the experience of an imbalance between mm -hmm. a threat and a resource. Yeah. And you've kind of attacked fear from two angles so far. First angle is sort of what we did last episode, where we're looking at, first angle is sort of what we did last episode, where we're asking, is there a way where we can reduce our perception of threat? Second angle is what we're doing kind of this episode so far at least, where how can we build up our resources to manage the real threats that do exist inside of our lives? So those are kind of the two ways that we've looked at so far. I'm interested in two kind of other cases, mm. both of them having to do with real-life situations where we are in fact challenged by a real threat that we have limited resources to answer. The first one being in the moment of the experience. Mm. Something bad is happening around us. Yeah. We're in a threatening situation. Mm. The We're in the plane and the pilot has turned on the seatbelt sign and we're rattling around in the midst of the turbulence, whatever mm. it might be. Like it's an actually activating threatening situation. Mm -hmm. What can we do to kind of lower our experience of fear or manage that fear as it arises or let through it pass through the mind and not remain. So that's yeah. sort of the first category I'm yeah. wondering about. The second category that I'm wondering about is more about kind of persistent bad things mm. that exist in our lives, a persistent health issue, yeah. something that's coming up that we're really dreading. Yeah. You know, that is really a bad thing. We really did a bad thing. Yeah. And now we have to go into the boss's office and get our, you know, mea culpa around it, whatever yeah. it might be. And I'm wondering how you would approach those real-world situations, kind of two different sorts of one. One's anticipatory, one's in the moment, where there really is something to be afraid about. It's a great, great question. And I, I love, Forrest, how you're, you're cutting through a lot of pop psych, new age, self-help BS, sure, yeah. and you're, you know, it's great, and you're getting right to real stuff. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the first case where you're uh, in a situation where there's an emergent threat that's very real, mm -hmm. of an emergent danger coming at you, and maybe you need to deal with it on a time scale of seconds sure. or minutes or hours, mm -hmm. and you've you really got to deal with it. I think that based on research, actually, on how people cope with these kind of emergent threats, even crises, as well as my own experience in this territory, I think of sort of three categories that could be useful, and I wonder what you think about them. So I'll just kind of name them, summarize them, and see what you think. The first category is to manage your bodily reactions. As you said earlier, we don't want to let the threat um, invade us and then remain, especially remain. So mm -hmm. we don't want it to control us. We don't want to go into panic. Yeah. We want to, even if there's a panicky reaction that arises, does it invade the mind and remain? Hopefully not. So I think the first of the three categories is to manage the bodily response. It's worth noting that the more we train off the battlefield, as it were, hopefully metaphorically, maybe actually, the more we train off the battlefield 
to uh, build up internal reservoirs of calm strength mm-hmm. and resting state, phys- or the visceral core of the body, the heart and the lungs especially, resting state calm or rapid recovery to calm when we're assaulted or truly disturbed or perturbed out yeah. of our resting state. The more we train off stage, uh, and the more actually we build up objective resources in our lives, in our relationships, in our financial situation, in our skills of various kinds, the the more we're going to be able to cope bodily and psychologically when the when the oatmeal really really hits the fan. That said, in the moment, the first category I think is to manage that response. There are different ways to do that. One is to really help the body calm down. Another is to be mindful of the reactions in the body. Mm. Another thing to do is to make sure that you're not overestimating how bad it is. Very quickly scale the issue of the problem. Is this truly life and death? Am Mm -hmm. I really about to fall out of the building? Mm -hmm. Really, maybe you are, but if you're not, it's not appropriate to be scared like that. So this sort of urgent care, it's like uh, triage almost. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's an immediate settling. And I think as part of it, it's very helpful to tap into and call up some of the resources that we've explored already in the, the grit, the strength of grit, including the sense of agency, this almost muscular sense of, I could be rattled, I could feel bad, but I am not defeatable. Mm-hmm. I am always going to keep on going. I'm always going to keep trying. Feel get, get the felt sense of that inside yourself. That's one. Two, muster a coping response. A lot of people are anxious, and they're not really mustering a coping response. They're not dialing 911. They're just living inside of that anxiety. Yeah, they're overwhelmed. They're frozen. And I get that it's understandable that you're frozen, maybe and immobilized based on a past trauma history, say. But after the the first 60 seconds, Mm -hmm. you don't need to be frozen any longer. It's time to do. Yeah, it's time to act. It's time to take action. So make sure you're doing everything you can. Gather information. Buy yourself time. Slow things down. Create buffers between yourself and the attacker or the circumstance that's attacking you. Think about people you can contact. Think about allies you can start to mobilize. Uh, mobilize a response. Uh, very often people in real situations counter what we've talked about with paper tiger paranoia. They're underestimating the scale of the threat. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I've known people who were, for example, in a divorce process. And they didn't really want to be getting a divorce, but there they were. They were in the legal system. And they naively thought that everybody was their best buddy. Mm. And they didn't realize Mm -hmm. that when you step into that courtroom, it's a war zone. It's a regulated war zone, but it's an adversarial combat situation. That person that you walked back down the wedding aisle with is no longer necessarily your best buddy. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people who really underestimated the scale of the issue. Or people who had a serious health issue. Or their kid was in real trouble and wasn't learning how to read or was hooked on drugs or in serious issues with the law. And or a person had a truly crazy neighbor or was really being stalked by somebody and they didn't get, wow, really it is Darth Vader or the Terminator coming at me. And I really need to rev up. And I'm looking for metaphors that are not violent or masculine, but that I need to, you know, well, you really need to assess the threat clearly and you need yeah. to act appropriately. And, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I see people routinely, they walk into my office and the mm-hmm. issue is they're not resourced up to the challenges that they face, mm-hmm. including health challenges. Mm-hmm. So that's the second thing, mount a coping response. And then I think the third category for real is to be, find a way to be at peace with the worst possibilities. Mm. 
And that's tough for people to realize, can you be at peace with the plane crashing? I think that's been a big difference maker for me, um, particularly about exactly what you just mentioned, which is that I fly a lot and I'm not necessarily in love with flying. I don't mind it. I don't have like a pathological fear of flying. But I would say that definitely during like takeoff and landing, I get a little antsy. And one of the things that has become kind of a practice that I've done is I've literally imagined like, okay, what would happen if the plane went down? Yeah. And I, like seriously, not in a morbid way, but just in a very real way, just kind of think about all the great stuff that's happened to me over the course of my life, the things that you would like to say to people, you know, whatever kind of helps you get through that moment, I think, and in a very real and a very, as I said before, kind of not morbid way. Yeah can really help you kind of manage the scale of the thread and sort of feel much more at peace in that moment with whatever might come. Yeah, and I think people find different ways into that. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you know, my dad, your grandfather, was a scientist who also was a practicing Christian. Mm -hmm. And as he approached the end of his life, I remember his comment one time uh, with regard to dying. He said, well, I'm really not afraid of dying because I figure it's either heaven or oblivion. And I'm okay either way. (laughs) That was his way. I'm not saying that's the necessarily right way for everybody, but that was one of his ways. And Mm -hmm. I think this is a category where people, they're railing against uh, the inevitable or they're railing against possibilities that they really can't control. And if you can't prevent it, in other words, if you've done the first two things, if you've helped your body not be so invaded by anxieties that remain. And if you truly have mounted uh, the best you can possibly do as a muscular, adaptive coping response, then whatever happens really, by definition, is beyond your control. Mm -hmm. So you might as well be at peace with it. Why take on extra um, burden? Mm -hmm. There's kind of a loose analogy as the old saying, the coward dies a thousand deaths, the hero dies but one. And if you're going to die a death, why not just die at once? Why die it a thousand times in your fears about it? Mm-hmm. And this is not meant in any way to be disrespectful, but a way that it may not work for everybody, a way to come to terms with the worst that can happen. It does not involve at all any lack of self-compassion, or and it does not involve any kind of minimization of your own needs. But it's based on a kind of view that horrible things have been happening to human beings throughout recorded history and for hundreds of thousands of years before that. I, I just think there's something about relaxing a certain grandiosity mm. or fantasy of being able to control or in some sense, a kind of assertion of privilege. Maybe that's the best way to put it. An assertion of privilege may often based on having had a lot of privileges handed to you, but some kind of assertion of existential privilege Mm. that actually is not in your power to assert. You might get really, really, really lucky. You might hit the jackpot. You might be that one person in a million who feels almost no pain as they go through their life and dies in their sleep after their 100th birthday. Sure. Fine. but. Most people have to deal with a fair amount of crud coming their way. And it's not their privilege to uh, demand to avoid it. As a really powerful little add-on to that, almost like a kind of trick, 
One way to manage the fear of really dreadful things happening to you is to find compassion for all the people that those dreadful things have actually happened to. Maybe people you know particularly, maybe just the knowledge that some people have died tragic deaths, some people have not gotten what they really deserved in justice in this life. Uh, Some people have been killed in horrible kinds of ways and different kinds of situations. So in, in an interesting way, when you're afraid of that happening to you, see if it's effective to mobilize compassion for those other people, including the people who are alive today, the children who are alive today around the world, to whom those things will eventually actually occur. And in the mobilization of compassion for them, I find actually that the fear of that sort of thing happening to oneself abates Mm -hmm. and declines Mm -hmm. and is eased away by the warm-heartedness of this compassion for others. So that's sort of the first case that we mentioned, that in-the-moment crisis management, how do you deal with fear when it's in the moment and it arises inside of you? So I'm curious about to move on, the second case, that anticipatory dread, that experience of there is something really scary coming down the pipeline towards you that you're really afraid of. And how do you manage that feeling of arising fear? The first thing I think it's useful to watch is what I call delusional anxiety. In Mm. other words, to sort out appropriate dread that's in proportion, and you get to decide what's appropriate. You get to decide what's proportional. And it's important to realize as well that oftentimes other people try to talk us out of our fears inappropriately, perhaps because they're trying to comfort us, or perhaps because our fears stir up their fears, Mm. or maybe because, frankly, they've got a vested interest in us not taking action, Mm -hmm. not mounting a coping response that's actually scaled up in its resources Mm -hmm. to uh, the scale of the actual threat coming at us. Whatever that reason might be, it's important to not let people talk you out of your fears when your fears are really appropriate. That said, there is in people, and you can observe it in yourself, when everything is perfectly safe, this ongoing trickle of anxiety. Walk across a room. You're in your own home. Move through your own house. There's this subtle background trickle in almost everyone of needless anticipatory anxiety. And for some people, it's more than a trickle, especially if they have any kind of history of trauma or mistreatment or or an extremely uh, anxious constitution by nature. And I think it's because uh, back in Jurassic Park, back in the Serengeti, uh, animals that did not have that anticipatory trickle were not as likely to live to see the sunrise. Mm. It was the animals who became our ancestors because they lived to see the sunrise and pass on genes that passed on genes who were nervous for no good reason, uh, that were right on their toes, even if they were uh, anxious and uncomfortable and stressed out. But being anxious for no good reason enabled them to be one bit more likely to survive when suddenly there was a good reason. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just because that's true, though, back in the Serengeti, doesn't necessarily mean that we as advanced, uh, sophisticated uh, primates Uh, who can actually appraise objective threats, need to suffer that trickle of delusional anxiety. It's kind of very much related to paper tiger paranoia. Yeah, it's like, well, it's even, it's not even, you're not even seeing a threat. 
You're just sure. You, you just, just feel an uneasy. Underpeering yeah. feeling of fear. It's really yeah. useful to be mindful of it. It's very interesting to be aware of that ongoing trickle of anxiety and see if you can filter it out. All right. That said, now you're really dreading something that's really, really real. What are some things that really help with that? One is to accept the fear and to not shame yourself for it. As you say, Forrest, don't add those second darts. Very often, I think that people are stuck with a fear because they don't let themselves feel it fully. Mm -hmm. Feel the fear. I had moments where I remember watching uh, Alien, the very first Alien, and I'm someone with an extremely active imagination, uh, for better or worse, who is anxious by temperament, and that is one heck of a scary film. And I remembered going to see it with my personal growth buddies. It was in the mid-70s. We were deep in the human potential movement. And I decided I'm going to let myself feel my fear fully. And I just felt it completely, all the scary stuff that was happening. Literally, my fingers were curling up because I was breathing so deeply. I was in such a state of terror. And yet, simultaneously, I was letting it wash through me. I was Mm. just letting the fear flood through. Mm -hmm. And if you let fear flood through you, kind of like the quotation from uh, Dune, you know, fear is the mind killer or something like that. Mm -hmm. If you let it blow through you like a storm, then you're not, it doesn't stick around. And so I think one of the very first things is to let yourself really feel the fear and try to get down to the sensations of it. People, when they say, I'm dreading something, the truth is they're not experiencing much dread. The primary contents of their mind is is a lot of cognition. They're thinking about the thing they don't want to have happen, or they're making up a story about it, or they're running movies about it in their own mind, rather than just zeroing in on the primal sensations of the fear, even the terror. Like, what is dread like in the pit of your belly? What is dread like in your chest? What's happening in your diaphragm when you're feeling the dread? What is your face doing? What is the sense of immobilization? What is the sleepiness coming over you? In other words, what are the primary emotions and sensations of the dread? And if you really, really open to it, often the dread will pass through you. Or if it comes back, it'll be much milder. It's when we're trying to keep it at bay that it grows and we feel stuck with it. It's trying to like holding a door against some sort of storm or monster. And if you just let the door open and let the monster whirl through the room, It would be intense for at least a few seconds, but then the monster would pass on by. Second big thing, make sure you're doing everything you can. We've talked a lot about that. And uh, routinely, people are not doing everything they can. They're not. So sit down, get out a yellow pad, write down a plan, think it through, take some time. Don't be a fool. If what you need to do to, uh, the bottom line is to stay on the game board of life. Because if you can stay on the game board of life, you will have opportunities in the future. One of the key kind of fear stories in my own life, you know it, I was coming down the back of Mount Whitney, having climbed a rock climbing route on it with my friend in October, and we came down foolishly, didn't realize that this snow gully, the so-called mountaineer's route that John Muir used to come back down, was iced in. And therefore, we had to move very, very slowly in our slippery rock climbing shoes and we uh, were therefore stuck late at night. And we had a choice. Should we keep on going in the darkness and risk a death fall that would kill us sliding down this icy chute? Mm-hmm. Uh, or 
would we just simply be really, really, really cold and uncomfortable all night long? Yeah. Well, you got a choice, right? Cold, uncomfortable, or death. Well, smart person picks cold and uncomfortable. And I think sometimes that people get caught up in their belief system that, oh, I can't, I can't go into savings for this, or I can't take out a credit card for that, or I can't call that person, or I can't reveal to others that I'm really worried about this thing, or I can't ask my doctors for more help. Oh, I can't. When in fact, guess what? You can't afford to do less than what you really, really need to do to deal with this particular thing. I see people that um, who have basically a brick in their backpack when they're jogging along at sea level, and they can afford at sea level when they're dealing with their minor issues. All right, you know, the beach is a little uneven. All right, you can afford to have that. But if you've got a cancer diagnosis, if suddenly you're facing bankruptcy, if someone's coming at you legally, if there's violence threatened in your world, if someone you love is in real serious danger, often we just can't afford the niceties or the preoccupations or the forms of righteousness or positionality that we're fine at sea level. It's like we're at 20,000 feet climbing uphill in a storm. You can't afford any of that crud in your backpack. So it's really important, I think, to shed it and to make sure that you're really resourced up for the scale of the issue. So to me, that's probably the second thing that really shows up there. The third thing, that, and last thing I just want to add here, is that it's really interesting to help yourself feel loved. People who are grappling with the worst things talk about what a resource it was for them to feel nourished or loved in one form or another. Maybe it's the nourishment or love of a sense of the universe, of the stars that are still shining, no matter what clouds are coming through. Or it could be recalling people who've really loved you, or knowing that in this life you have loved. Just marinating in that uh, felt sense of love in whatever form is authentic for you. I think for many, many people is an absolutely vital refuge and resource when they're grappling with the scariest, worst, hardest things of all. I think that's a really sweet note to end on. So today we talked about two big topics. The first one was how can we feel safer, largely by increasing our perception of resources in our lives and learning how to bring those resources to bear effectively. And the second was coping with real fear, is how I'll describe it. There are times where threats are low and resources are high, but we think that threats are high and resources are low, and that's kind of relating to the paper tiger paranoia problem or inaccurate assessment of our own resources. But there are also times in our life when threat is high and resources low, and what do you do in that moment? You have to cope with fear effectively in order to take the actions that you need to take to, as you said, kind of stay on the chessboard of life. So inside of that, we discussed a number of different ideas. We discussed the nature of fear itself, that imbalance between threats and resources. We talked about how it's important to see threats clearly. We really covered that in the previous episode, but we also remarked on it in this one. And how a little bit of anxiety can be a really good friend. A little bit of that sense of, okay, I'm going to appraise the world around me clearly. That's not such a bad thing. It's when that fear invades the mind and remains that we start to wander into the danger zone. One of the things that we can really do to feel safer is to build up the resources in our life, either the 
actual existence of more resources or just seeing the resources that we really do have more clearly. Then we moved on to that coping with real fear, how there were kind of two different cases. The first one is something suddenly hits you. Some fear suddenly arises in your life or in your body and you got to deal with it in the moment. It's that triaging that you mentioned before. The second case is anticipatory dread. The things that might be coming down the pipe towards you that you see rolling your way and you feel like you're just in the way of the boulder rolling down the hill and there's nothing you can do about it. How do you manage those kinds of fear? You gave a number of recommendations for dealing with both. A lot of it was oriented around mobilizing resources in your defense, seeing the nature of the threat clearly, making sure that you're not just getting caught up in an underlying sense of low-grade continuous anxiety, and then finally really trying to find that peace, whether that be through the recognition of the wonderful things that you've had so far in your life, or experiences and memories related to feelings of love, which you threw out at the end there, which I thought was a really wonderful point. So next week, we're going to be talking about anger, one of the most powerful emotions of all and effective ways to manage it. Specifically, we're going to talk about how we can cool anger when it arises inside of us. But until then, thanks for listening.